Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. Before I jump into the sermon, um, this is a little bit out of order uh, with respect to how we normally do things, but I wanted to pause uh, and honor someone, uh, make an announcement and honor someone uh, this morning. Many of you know Luke Beatty. Uh, who has been our band director, uh, who's been a sojourn for a long time. He's been our band director since the middle of 2017. And today is actually Luke's last Sunday serving as band director at Sojourn. He made the decision to, to step down in this season. And I wanted to pause and just notice aloud how grateful I am personally for you, Luke, and how grateful we are as a church for, for you. Luke has been uh, supporting Jenna uh, in the band since uh, middle of 2017, doing a lot of the heavy lifting behind the scenes. Um, he's been, uh, uh, played a major role in picking the songs that we sing, in arranging the songs that we sing. Uh, when things shut down due to COVID, he became a recording expert in how to mix uh, and create videos for us for our live stream. Um, when we began gathering in person for the outdoor gathering, Luke was, it was Luke and James uh, our sound guy who did almost 99% of the heavy lifting to pull off our outdoor gatherings. Luke has been a faithful and steadfast servant to you all, to us, to all of us. And so, Luke, thank you for your service.
If you have a moment afterwards today, please do uh, go up to Luke and tell him thank you. Accost him, if you will, uh, with your thanks and our gratitude. Psalm 40 begins in verse 1 with, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. This Advent season, we've been taking the opportunity together to slow down and consider what it means to be a people who wait patiently for the Lord. A people who are invited and sometimes thrust into the wilderness where we're forced to slow down and stop to notice our surroundings, to notice ourselves, to see the darkness both within and around us and reflect upon our need for renewal, for repair, for redemption in a way that brings us to a sense of eager and maybe even desperate longing for God to shine light into the darkness. One of my seminary professors in a class on the book of Hebrews pointed out a well-known couple of verses from the book of Hebrews that say this. They say, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. If you've been around Sojourn for some time or if you're familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard those verses. My professor pointed out that in those words, essentially the writer to the Hebrews is telling Christians that our whole lives are one big waiting service. The life of the Christian is a lifelong waiting service. At the time Hebrews was written, Jesus had already secured victory over sin and death. He had died and risen again and risen again. And even with this great security and hope, as Christians, we continue to wait for the completion, for the consummation of the plan of God in our lives and in the world around us. So even as we enjoy real renewal ourselves and we get to celebrate watching renewal in those around us, we are, we are still waiting. And the writer of the Hebrews says, we wait with confidence and secure hope because he who promised is faithful. And so we should be encouraging one another, comforting one another in this waiting, all the more as the day draws near. And this is a beautiful truth. The thing is, we Christians aren't currently known by the world around us as a patiently waiting people. We're known by many things. We're known as opinionated. We're known as judgmental. Sometimes we're called power-hungry political activists, fear-mongers, you name it. Rather than being seen as patient, gentle, and kind, so often today Christians are seen as those who speak our minds very quickly, those who are harsh, demanding of those around us. And now I don't think that we're supposed to just sit back and roll over and say and do nothing. I think that a part of our calling as Christians is to speak what is true, sometimes even when those around us don't want to hear what it is we have to say. But in a lot of cases, I don't think that we're doing this very well right now. In John 1 verse 14, John describes Jesus as, by saying this, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of both grace and truth. Today, in much of the American church, at least in our theological camp, there tends to be more truth than grace. 
as a writer named Kevin DeYoung once put it, we need to be grace people and truth people. Not half grace, half truth. Not all grace on Mondays and all grace or, and all truth on Tuesdays. All grace and all truth all of the time. End quote. And that begs the question, what are we missing? If we seem to be known by things other than what Jesus was known by, what are we missing? I think our passage for today is particularly appropriate given this question because it contains a critical ingredient in being gracious. That is grace-filled people of truth. And so this morning we're in Luke chapter 1 in a passage that recounts this dialogue between two cousins about the fact that the world is about to be changed forever by the coming of its Savior. And every Advent, every Christmas season, we revisit this same old story. A baby born in non-impressive circumstances to non-impressive parents with angels singing songs about the glory of God. And then we go back to our lives. And every year we ask the question, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, how does this humble story have anything to do with our lives? And as I pray, we'll see this morning, once again, perhaps even for the first time, I think we're gonna see that this has everything to do with our lives and with the kind of people we are to be in the world today. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. First, we're gonna look at the two parts of our text for this morning, uh, this meeting between Mary and Elizabeth that you heard Nate read, uh, and then Mary's song of praise in response, and we'll pull out some observations. Second, we're going to zoom into a few particular details in Mary's song uh, and, and ask what the Lord might be inviting us to consider through those words. And then third, we're gonna consider what that means for our life together as a church, and then we'll be done. And so, as we jump in, first, a bit of context. We're in the book of, excuse me, the, the first chapter of the book of Luke. Luke, uh, who is the only Gentile contributor to the New Testament, was a doctor by profession and was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. Luke wrote this gospel in the form of a letter to a man named Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus, he refers to him. Listen, actually, to verses three and four of chapter one. Luke writes, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke's concern as he writes these words, after having done extensive research among firsthand eyewitnesses, is to give an orderly account of the story of Jesus Christ to Theophilus, a ranking Roman official, so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things that he's heard about this Jesus. Up front, therefore, Luke gives his aim. He wants to clarify the truth about Jesus. He wants to give the facts so that Theophilus might know just what took place and have confidence of what is the truth, among which what were probably many different versions of what had happened. Luke writes just as a physician would have written. He gives the longest of the four gospel accounts of the birth narrative of Jesus. And then he goes into more detail in other areas than the other gospel writers. And beneath everything Luke writes is almost as if you can hear his earnest appeal throughout. This is the truth. This is what happened. And you can hang your life, Theophilus, on this reality. And as we have noticed this, these past few weeks, historically speaking, when Jesus was born... God's people had endured hundreds of years of silence since the words of the last prophet Malachi, whose prophecy had ended with the cliffhanger. I'm going to send, wait, you know, God says through Malachi to his people, wait, I'm going to send someone to prepare the way of the Lord, and then this Lord is going to come. 
the two couples that Luke opens his gospel with, Zechariah and Elizabeth on one hand, and Mary and Joseph on the other hand, were undoubtedly, they were steeped in the Jewish scriptures and the traditions, and they would have known in a general sense, along with the rest of Israel, that God was going to one day send the Messiah. But how this would come about, they had no idea. And then in Luke chapter one, leading up to our passage, God has sent angels to prepare the way for two extremely significant figures. This one who would come in the spirit of Elijah and the Lord himself. And in our passage for today, the mothers of these two figures meet. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in this incredible meeting, we get a foretaste of the wonderful things that are to come. And finally, right before our passage, when the angel Gabriel told Mary that she was going to bear a son, even as a virgin, Mary asked him how this would come about. The angel said that the Holy Spirit would come upon her in a miraculous way. And to make his point that nothing is impossible with God, he says in verse 36, Behold, Mary, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. And so Mary leaves in a hurry. Uh, to go see her cousin Elizabeth and to get a look at this miracle the angel had told her would give her confidence that the child she bears is indeed the son of God. And so that's where we come into our story this morning. Let me read Luke chapter one. We're starting in verse 39. Let me read the first section. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We'll stop there. This is the first of the two parts, two major parts of the passage for this morning. And there are three things I want to point out for us here before moving on. The first thing to note here is that like in previous weeks, there's a great emphasis on prophecy being fulfilled. Prophecy is fulfilled in this very moment. Back in chapter 1, verse 15 of Luke, Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, had been given a prophecy from the angel Gabriel concerning their son, who was to be named John. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And here, when Elizabeth sees Mary, we see that John, who would come to be known as John the Baptist, the waymaker for Jesus, begins his prophetic ministry in utero. Filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, John the Baptist leaps for joy, essentially saying, it's him. It's him. So not only is this a fulfillment of the prophecy that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb, but this pre-birth act is also a preview of the very ministry that John's father had been told that he would perform. Decades later, in a scene recorded in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River uh, and inviting them to repent because of the nearness of the kingdom of God, Jesus arrives and then John records this detail uh, in, John's gospel, in his gospel. John the Baptist drops what he's doing and he says, behold, it's him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one we've been waiting for. That's exactly what John is doing here too. John was created to be a signpost to Jesus. And here, even before he's born, it's what he's doing. 
He's heralding the Lamb of God. For the second thing to point out in the, this first section of text is look for a moment at, at, at how Elizabeth, John's mother, responds to John leaping in her womb. Verse 41, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Elizabeth, we're told, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit lead her to do? The chief ministry of the Holy Spirit as we see elsewhere in scripture, is to point to Jesus. And that's exactly what he does here. The Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, points her to the child in Mary's womb to say, this is the one you've been waiting for. And filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth confesses Jesus as Lord. Verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth uses a word for Lord twice in these verses, once in verse 43 and again in verse 45, this word for Lord is exclusively used to refer to God. And so in other words, this is kind of a fine detail, but Elizabeth is not just saying that this child in Mary's womb is going to be a great man. No, this is, you're the mother of my Lord as though he's gonna be a great man. She's saying that he is the Lord of all creation who has taken on human form. Commentators point out that this detail makes it really important to notice that she is filled with the Holy Spirit as she says this. We're to understand this not as a speculation from Elizabeth, that this may or may not be true, but as a revelation from God through Elizabeth as she was filled with the Spirit. So this wasn't Elizabeth with a fanciful imagination considering her baby's sudden kicking in her womb and jumping to the conclusion that Mary's baby is the Lord of all creation. No, this is the Holy Spirit revealing to and through Elizabeth that the Lamb of God has come into the world. The third thing I want to point out here in this first section is kind of just to give us an invitation to put ourselves in Mary's shoes for a moment. At this first greeting between Mary and Elizabeth, the promise from Mary, to Mary from the angel likely took on an additional layer of meaning. While this would have, of course, also been true for Elizabeth, given the fulfilled prophecy from her husband, um, I think, I want us to think for just a moment about what this experience would have been like, particularly for Mary. Mary had heard from an angel that she was going to be, give birth to the Son of God. And when she asked how this would happen, the angel had told her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her to conceive. And to encourage her, the angel mentioned that a similar miracle had happened with his cousin, or excuse me, with her cousin, Elizabeth. And Mary responded to the angel with faith, saying, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So Mary trusted God's word through the angel and then took off to see Elizabeth. I can only imagine, of course, what that trip would have been like for Mary. Uh, it would have been about a four-day hike from Nazareth to the town in Judah where Elizabeth lived, and her mind was probably racing. She knew in her head, we're told, she knew that what the angel had told her was true. But nevertheless, when she arrives at Elizabeth's house and finds Elizabeth pregnant and receives this exclamation of blessing and praise from Elizabeth, while Mary wouldn't be surprised necessarily, it's something that no doubt would have hit her with an additional layer of reality. I remember at my wedding, when Lindsay and I got, you know, when Lindsay and I got married, if you didn't know what my wedding was, uh, I remember at our wedding, uh, the, the minister said husband and wife, and that made it instantly true. We were married immediately in that moment. But then I remember a friend of mine at the reception just a few minutes later saying, hey, I can't wait to, you know, can't wait to give your wife a hug. And it hit me in that moment in a way that it was true. And I believed that she was my wife. 
But in that moment, when he looked at me and said, I can't wait to give your wife a hug, that just brought it into a new, it just gave it a new layer of meaning for me. There was probably a similar thing happening here for Mary. This moment of, my God, in all reverence, my God, this is real. And then as she went through her pregnancy, it would have continued to, to continually become more and more real for her that she was carrying the savior of the world. You could use, uh, or sorry, excuse me, as one commentator put it, often a very little thing suffices to make a divine thought, which had previously only been conceived as an idea, take distinct form and life within us. So Mary knew, but it took on its, a life of its own, a new life, a new meaning in this meeting with Elizabeth. So that's the first section of the text. Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house. She receives this exuberant, likely unexpected welcome from Elizabeth who blesses Mary, the mother of her Lord. And the experience is so moving for Mary that she responds with one of the most beautiful poems in all of scripture. Let's read this section, second section, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich, the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's beautiful. And to start with, right at the beginning, notice the first three words. What was that? It says, right, actually right before she says it, it says, and Mary said, verse 46, and Mary said, really notice what that doesn't say. It doesn't say, and Mary arose and burst forth in song with a loud voice. It doesn't say, and Mary shouted from the mountaintops this beautiful song. No, Luke simply records, and Mary said. As one commentator put it, this introduction breathes a sentiment of deep inward repose. We get a sense from Mary here of calm humility and confidence in God. Responding to God and God's grace, you see, it doesn't need to be a highly emotional, exuberant experience. That depth of feeling doesn't require outward exuberance. That's not to say it can't involve that. It's, I'm not saying that Elizabeth's exclamation back in verse 42 in a loud cry was in any way inappropriate because it certainly wasn't. But it's simply to observe that that's not required. Here we see Mary as a deeply connected young woman to the promises of God displaying a humble confidence in her God. And with this sentiment of deep inward repose, she speaks in a poem that's absolutely dripping with scripture. If you have a Bible, God bless you. If you have a Bible with cross references, you'll see that this song is filled with cross references. Um, and I encourage you at some other time to consider looking through those cross references. What we see here though, is not that Mary is trying to quote scripture, but as John Piper once said, we see here that Mary is so steeped in scripture that when she breaks out in praise, the words that come naturally to her lips are the words of scripture. 
And let's look what she says. There are three main parts of this song. The Magnificat, as it's often been called. In the first part, verses 46 and 47, we see the state of Mary's heart in response to what has happened. Total joy and praise. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, like we just sang together. We get the image of the totality of worship from every part of Mary's being directed at the Lord, her God, and her Savior. And why is she magnifying the Lord? In the second part, verses 48 and 49, she gives name to what God has done for her. She says, God has looked upon my humble estate and he whose money has done great things for me. And in the third part, which is the longest section, verses 50 through 55, Mary roots what God has done for her in the truth about who God is and how he works in the world. God brings down the mighty and he exalts the humble, thus fulfilling the prophecies, his promises to his people. And this morning, as we move into the second uh, part of this sermon, looking at what the Lord might invite us to consider together, I think what Mary sees here as being at the very heart of God's character and plan cuts in a really important way at the heart of our culture. Look at verse 48 with me again. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I think it's actually worth pausing to consider what Mary means by this. A few years ago, I listened to a talk by a man named David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist and commentator. He was lamenting the loss of humility in America. In that talk, he shared some really poignant stats about the shift in self-perception that we have experienced as a society, as a society excuse me, away from humility. Just a couple of the numbers that he gives. In 1950, Gallup asked high school seniors, do you think you're a very important person? 12% of high school seniors in 1950 said, yes, I think I'm a very important person. In 2005, it was 80%. With respect to math scores, we are now 36th in the world in math performance, but we are number one in thinking that we're really good at math. The lowest scores are the South Koreans who think they're the worst at math, but they're actually the best at math. Another one, 96% of college professors believe they have above average teaching skills. Time Magazine's survey asking people if they were in the top 1% of earners revealed that 19% of people in the US think they're in the top 1% of earners. Suffice it to say that here in the US, we think that we're pretty awesome. In other words, our culture today has a humility problem. And because of that, we probably have a hard time relating to the idea of having the humble estate that Mary refers to. Most of us think of this often in terms of money. We tend to be quick to point out the poverty of biblical characters like Mary doing so in financial terms. But this is far deeper than that. This isn't merely a statement of material poverty, while it certainly may include that. It isn't merely a statement of being a low-class person either, while it certainly may include that too. This is Mary saying, I am nothing. I am worth nothing. A lowly servant, not even worth mentioning in the names of servants. I don't even bear noticing on my own account, but God has chosen to look at me. 
Let me put it this way. Mary's rejoicing in this event of being chosen isn't her saying, finally, my time has come. Often you and I have been trained to look at people in lowly circumstances and say, just wait. Your time is gonna come and then things are gonna be great because you were created for awesomeness. Good things are going to happen for you. Good things come to those who wait, we say. Let me say that's not what Mary had in mind as she said these words. This is Mary saying, I was low. I was not waiting for my time to come. I didn't deserve anything and yet God saw fit in his providence to do great things for me. This is true humility. This is what Jesus talked about when he talked about being poor in spirit. Material wealth is the metaphor Jesus uses to describe the status of the soul. We are totally at the mercy of God, totally in need of his providence. Both the understanding and the lived reality that without him, you are nothing. But we have a really hard time with this. We've grown so ingrained with the idea that we are awesome that even when we show ourselves to be abject failures, we paint these moments as clarifying moments, showing us that there's something else we're good at. Failure is the next step on your road to success. And the reason I'm zooming in so closely on this is because of what Mary says in the third section of the Magnificat. Mary is rooting what God has done for her in the truth of God's character and how he works in the world. And if you look at, with, if you look at, at this section of, of this poem with me, it's essentially a series of contrasts. On the one hand, Actually, Rick, don't worry about it. I'm going to go real fast through these. So just don't worry about it. might be distracting. On the one hand, you have God's gracious provision for the humble. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him. Verse 52, he has exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel. So on the one hand, you have God's gracious provision for the humble. On the other hand, you have God's judgment for the proud. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, the rich he has sent away empty. As I said just a moment ago, Mary's song is steeped in scripture. And a recurring theme throughout the scriptures is that God loves a humble heart and that he opposes the proud. To look at just one book of the Old Testament, Proverbs. Uh, book is, which is basically essentially a series of statements intended to make one wise. The number of times it heralds the wisdom that comes with humility and warns against pride uh, is quite large. Here's just a few examples. Proverbs 11:2. When pride comes, disgrace follows, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 29, verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Proverbs 15:33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and humility comes before honor. And then Proverbs 18, verse 12, before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. And let me pause on that last one for just a moment. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. That sounds a little bit familiar. In our passage, verse 51 Mary says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their, their hearts. A man's heart is proud. And Mary says, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Often, the way that God judges people is to hand them over to the desires of their own hearts. In other words, the means God uses of carrying out his judgment on the proud is often the desires of their hearts themselves. 
our hearts can be our own undoing. Our proud desires can lead us astray and can be themselves a form of real judgment. Think about this. Think about a man who following his desire for more acclaim or wealth throws himself into his work and as a result neglects his family, watching as his wife and kids grow more and more resentful, leading to splintered, conflict-ridden relationships with those who should be most dear to him. Think even about the man who, out of a good desire to bring justice or truth to the world, takes the responsibility for change squarely on his own shoulders and becomes obsessed with his cause, pouring himself out, doing just about the same thing as this other man who was chasing wealth. And he does the same thing with his relationships, gives himself over, neglects his family, his kids. Resentment grows, conflict grows, division grows. I could tell you the story of a preacher or two who this would describe. Verse 51, Mary writes, Mary says, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Where have the thoughts of your heart gotten you in life? Where have the thoughts of your heart gotten you in life? Have they led to unity between you and others? Unity and love between you and your spouse, between you and others, between you and the world around you? Have they led to gentleness and kindness? Or have they led to conflict, judgmentalism, division, loneliness, scattering, as this passage would call it? Beneath the surface, each one of us has a humility problem. Not one of us is humble by design or, or, or in our nature. We can be well-practiced at looking humble and at living humbly. We might even be philosophically convinced that humble living is truly beneficial for us in the long run, even if it hurts us in the short term. But even when your pride doesn't look like someone who's full of himself or herself, it can be hidden down deep where even we are not aware of the depths of our pride. There's this story from the ministry of Jesus where this rich young ruler comes up to him, thinking that he's held up his end of the bargain of the covenant, that he's fulfilled the law. He's been generous, all those kinds of things. But then when Jesus tells him to sell everything, this rich man is perhaps for the first time in his life brought to the reality, face to face with the reality that this step is a step that his heart is not willing to take. There's another detail to note here in Luke's particular writing of these details. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, the rich he has sent away empty. Remember Theophilus, the reason I included that detail a moment ago, remember Theophilus who this letter is written to, this gospel is written to. Theophilus was a ranking Roman official who no doubt had wealth, power, likely some pride as the result of the two. As Luke writes this account then, he undoubtedly has in mind a warning for Theophilus as well. Both warning and a note of salvation. This is where God is to be found, Theophilus, in the low place. Beware of your wealth, your position of power, because they can be a snare to you. They can keep you from God. And the question is, what is that for you? What is that for us? What is the thing that is a snare to you? threatens to keep you from finding God in the humble place? Is it your excellence at work that keeps bringing you success after success? Is it your success as a parent, the money you have in the bank, the high opinions that others have of you? 
Or is it your lack of those things? Your unmet desires for a relationship you want, the community that you need, the job that you feel like you deserve, that you are unilaterally focused on, that is keeping you from thinking about anything else. We all have a humility problem. It is as deep as the thoughts of our hearts. And the question is, how do we do it? Mary here says that God has looked upon her, her humble estate because it's those who fear God, the humble and the hungry, who are exalted and fed. As it says in the book of James, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so the question is, how do we do it? How do we humble ourselves? Here's the bad news. The truth is that on our own, we are utterly unable to present God with the humble heart that he desires. In part because we are unable to see God for who he truly is in a way that right-sizes us. And because this is because we're always looking at God and at the world through the veil of our sin and our separation from God. This is what it means to be in darkness. This is what it means to be blind, as Jesus talks about numerous times in his ministry. The only way that we are able to see God for who he truly is in a way that rights our wrong understanding of him and of ourselves is if he breaks in and reveals himself to us. In and of ourselves, we are unable to humble ourselves before God. But here's the good news. This is the whole point of Advent. Light shining in the darkness. The blind having their sight restored. And in this first chapter of Luke, we're given a window into what this looks like. Think about it. Mary is told by an angel that she will conceive and bear a son. And when she asks how it will come about, she's told by that angel, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So Mary takes him at his word, this angel. And then at some point between that interaction and her greeting with Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit has come upon her to conceive the Son of God. And it is Mary, now filled with the Spirit, who walks in humble confidence, singing this glorious hymn about the character and goodness of God to the humble. One of the things Elizabeth commends in Mary, verse 45, is her faith. That Mary is to be commended for believing what God had promised to her. How is it that Mary believes in this? The truth is that this faith is a gift. This faith is illumined. It's, it's lit up by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come merely from knowing the promises of God, as Mary certainly did. It comes also from knowing God himself. From God drawing near and introducing himself to her. It was God through the power of the Holy Spirit who tied Mary's knowledge of the scriptures with this personal relationship, spreading her or leading her into the fullness of joy. And think about Elizabeth for just a moment. What happens to her that she is able to confess Jesus as Lord? Verse 41 tells us that this whole exchange is prompted by Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we're paying attention, we'll see that Mary is not the only one here who demonstrates otherworldly humility. Consider this for just a moment. Did you notice the absolute lack of rivalry between Mary and Elizabeth? Elizabeth, think about it. Elizabeth has just received this extraordinary miracle of God. She herself is carrying a miraculous baby in her womb. It's this blessing from the Lord. And then here comes Mary, the one-upper. And Elizabeth doesn't make a single sly remark. 
couldn't you have stayed home for just a little while longer so that I could be congratulated, Mary? None of that. We see Holy Spirit-filled joy between the two of them, just praising God in humility for what he has done for his people through them, through no good of their own, but simply because God has seen fit to use them. This is otherworldly humility. We are unable, left to ourselves, to humble ourselves before God, presenting the humble heart that God is pleased to fill with good things. But by God's grace, he is willing to condescend, not just to speak to us, but to enter into our very hearts by the Holy Spirit, humbling us and calling us to himself. And this, this sojourn is the ministry that I am praying that the Lord uses, that, that the Lord does in our hearts in this Advent season this year. Our lives are filled with the noise of what is wrong in the world, what is wrong in the people around us, what is wrong in our own lives, it seems like every week there's another scholar or doctor giving another diagnostic tool or writing another book to better describe what's wrong with things, whether it be our digestive systems or our ideologies or our emotional trauma or our stewardship of the planet, you name it. And listen, I'm very grateful for all of these things and these books. I'm grateful to have a college degree in both science and philosophy. I'm as in favor of scientific and ideological progress as anyone in the room. But my concern is that there is a particular tone to much of the progress that is being made that says that in all of these problems that we are doing such a good job of identifying, we can do it. I can do it. You can do it. Armed with the right knowledge and fortitude, we've got this. And for another disclaimer, I'm a big advocate for the fact that there are things that we can and need to be doing. But the message of Advent is decidedly different from the message of our culture today. The message of Advent is that we cannot do this on our own. Yes, God will use us. He will exalt us to a place even of being co-regents with him in creation. He will entrust us with real responsibility to do great things in the world, but it's just that he will do it. It's God with us and then through us so that no one can boast. It's God with us and then through us so that we don't need to worry and take things on our own shoulders. It's God in and with us and then through us in his time, in his way, so that we're not the ones needing to grab the reins and try to force the gospel into the world around us. The message of Advent is that into the darkness, God shines light. Through Christ, the light from heaven has arrived and we are told by Jesus that the church is a light for the nations, a beacon of light multiplying into the world to bring light into the lives of all we come across. And I'm concerned that many of us as Christians today have lost sight of the confidence that God is and always will be the one doing this. I'm concerned that the patterns of our lives and ministries far too often have begun to look more like trying to force the light of the gospel on people in a way that looks like us holding the reins rather than God. Too often, rather than waiting on the Lord to bring about his purposes in situations, in conversations, in relationships, in our ministries, we charge in and we use the term boldness 
to describe things that would probably more accurately be described as foolish, unkind, and impatient. Too often we sound more like Job's friends who draw nearer to a suffering brother with words of rebuke right off the bat. We sound more like Job's friends than we do like Jesus, who in a conversation with a broken woman at a well leads with asking to share a drink of water with her. Ray Ortland, a retired pastor who I was listening to on a podcast the other day, you may have heard his name. Uh, he's one of the gentlest pastoral voices that I, ever think I, that I think I've ever listened to. He said this when he considered the effects of social media on human interaction and the Christian witness in the world. This is Ray Orland, this gentle pastor. He said, on social media, I do get riled up. I do get angry. And then he said this. He said, I don't trust my moral fervor. He said, I think my moral fervor is the most immoral thing about me. The most destructive thing about me. It scares me. Of course, having moral convictions is a very important part of being a Christian. But wisdom with our words and how we wield those convictions in real relationship is of paramount importance. The how behind that is of paramount importance. Moral fervor can be quite dangerous. Moral fervor often comes more from insecurity, which is really a subtle form of pride. I should be doing this than it does from humility and love. When we think about social media and the way that communication with those whom we disagree, with whom we disagree is modeled, that communication is so often marked by zingers and qualifiers like, I'm just saying. And the thing that seems to be missing is kindness. And even those of us who are not on social media ought be aware of how this is affecting the way that we're talking with people these days. Ray Ortland follows this up by pointing to Proverbs 16:21 that says, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Inversely, or excuse me, inversely, that proverb could say, harshness of speech increases resistance. Does yelling at each other on the internet increase the persuasiveness of the Christian message? How is it working for you when you go right off the bat, whether it be to your sister, your dad, the stranger you just met, to just lead out with your opinions just to make it known? How does that, how does that affect their view of Jesus? There's a humility that comes with knowing and trusting God and waiting on him to work in his time, in the world around you, in the people around you, in your own heart. There is a humility that comes in knowing and trusting God in this way, without which it will be inordinately difficult to be gentle with the people around us because they've got to know. I've got to tell them they may die tomorrow. They've got to know. And while yes, there is urgency to the ministry of the gospel that's been entrusted to us, we must make sure that the model that we're following as we seek to love the people around us is, is, is the right model of what ministry looks like. Are we following the model of Job's friends who jump in with rebuke and strong opinions? Or is it Jesus who intentionally builds relationships focused on truth, but marked by love and patience and grace? There's one more thing 
in our passage to live this way, to minister with this kind of humility and patience requires something else that we see here. In the way that she speaks, it's as if Mary understands the ministry of her unborn son to be as good as done. Look with me at the words she uses. He has shown strength. He has scattered. He has brought down. For those of you who enjoy the intricacies of grammar, this is, think, of, think of this as a prophetic perfect sense. It describes the future work of God's son as, as though it is the, you know, as certain as a past event. Mary saw in this moment, she saw as already accomplished what God would do through her son one day. Even when Jesus had yet to be born, Mary considered the reality of Jesus's return as already done. Her life was characterized, her response here was characterized by the joy of Jesus's finished work before he even started. In this, I think that the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not just to cut through our pride and make us humble before God and just leave us there. Of course, humility will certainly remain, but godly humility will also bring us to a place of confidence that God is active, that he is moving, and that his plan of renewal is in progress and will one day certainly be completed. It's in this place of humble confidence that we see that our purpose is no longer to live for ourselves, but for the sake of him who died and was raised. You see, the reason our pride is so offensive to God is that it runs against the very purpose for which God created us. God created us for glory, to be his image bearers in the world, a unified people to whom he would reveal his glory and through whom he would reveal his glory to the world. And when humanity fell into sin, the chief outcome of that sin was self-centered living living on our own mission rather than on God's mission. And God's plan for all time was to redeem us from this self-centered pursuit that leaves us nowhere but scattered and apart and alone to a life marked by humility and submission to his mission that changes the world. And so in sending his son to earth in humble circumstances, the narrative of God's plan was reaching its climax. Through humble circumstances, through which God's people were looking and wondering how could this possibly change the world. God was in process of changing the world. God's mercy, God's strength, bringing down the mighty, exalting the humble, filling the hungry with good things, sending the rich away empty. Jesus' earthly ministry was getting ready to be the fulfillment of each of those things. And it's continuing on even today through the church as he is at work in the world. And Mary, in the words of this song, lived her life, worshiped God as though those things were already done, trusting that in God's providence, these things would happen because he who promised is faithful. Jesus said in his ministry, greater things than these. He did some really amazing things in his ministry. He said, greater things than these, looking at his disciples, will you do? You and I are God's answer for the world, the need of the world. The church is the body of Christ functioning as Jesus' hands and feet, carrying out the completion of his messianic ministry. And all of this happens only through humility, through people who are willing to wait, through people who are willing to be patient, to love people around us with a love that brings together both truth and grace. 
a love that is characterized by a patient trust, knowing that we're not the ones in control of the speed and the order of things, but thank God that he is. This Advent, we've been looking at God bringing us to the wilderness, bringing us to the end of ourselves and teaching us of our powerless to change things in and of ourselves so that we might be brought to a place where we are waiting for the one who is powerful to come, waiting for he who is mighty to come and do great things. Mary is a living example of the words that she shares. God has exalted those of humble estate and he has filled the hungry with good things. Could you sing a song like Mary's? Could we sing a song like Mary's? He has looked on the humble estate of his servants and has filled us with good things. Let me close with this. In a passage that so highlights quiet humility, it's really kind of interesting, almost funny to note that we're pointed forward to the work that God is going to do through the church. And it makes it sound like our ministry is that of taking on the world. These, seems, these things seem, this is kind of a paradoxical thing. Through humility, we will take on the world. And the thing is, our desire to take on the world is not misinformed, it's merely misplaced. We are not on our own capable of winning the revolution, of securing and procuring the renewal that the world so desperately needs. We can't do it. We don't even deserve to be on the winning team. But it is in that realization, when we are brought to the end of ourselves, when we realize that we can't do it, that we find God, for God is in the low place. It is through the humble, the poor, and the weak that God's holy and majestic power is manifest in the world. It is through the weakness of his people that his strength is made manifest. And brothers and sisters, as we think about Mary's words and the model and example that Mary gives us in this passage, it's my prayer, our prayer together, I hope, that God would make us, that God would humble us before him. Teach us what it means to be patient, to live our lives as though all of life is a waiting service for God to act so that we can truly love people in the way that they need to be loved, in the way that Jesus showed us how to love, um, even as we wait for the day that we know is coming. Let me pray for us. God, we come before you and we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your ministry to us by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would speak to us, that you would humble us through this, your word. As we look at the world around us, as we look at our own lives, things may seem as though they're falling apart. You allow us to come to a place where we feel powerless. And I pray that you would bring us through that feeling of powerlessness, through these wilderness experiences to the realization that that is actually true. And that you will use us in our humility, in our weakness. You will use these things, these desperate circumstances to humble us, bring us to look to you and then join with you in the revolution that is changing the world forever. Lord, give us the confidence that we need to trust you, to release control of our lives and of the situations around us so that we can be present with you and see you for who you are and so that we can be present with the people around us and see them for who they are, whether we agree with them or not. 
whether they agree with us or not. That you would teach us how to love with gentle, kind, just loving posture, marked by humility, bringing with us both grace and truth. Teach us, Lord, we need it. Minister to us, Lord, and I pray that as we come to the close this Advent and get ready to celebrate on Christmas your arrival into the world, I pray that you would fix our eyes on you, the one who showed us what true humility is, that though you are God, you humbled yourself, taking on the form of a servant so that you might come and save us. We love you, we trust you, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.